Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Cartech Garage. Max, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and kick off another couple weeks in automotive history. Um, again, sorry so much for being a little bit late on a couple of things, but we're trying to compound as much as we can. So we've got two weeks coming right at you. Yeah, we um, want to make sure we have a full year in history for you guys. Exactly. We've got to f- finish what we started at least. <laughs> All right. It's so like a race, you know, <laughs> I won't quit until I finish that race. Yep. Or until something breaks. Even if I got to walk the rest of the way. Fair enough. That's, that's stick-to-itiveness. Yep. Uh-huh. It's actually a word. When I heard that word, I didn't even think it was a word. I was like, stick-to-itiveness. No, it's a word. Um, October 24th, 1975, 46 years ago, Mr. John DeLorean founded the DeLorean Motor Company in Detroit, of course. Um, now, he was already well-known in the automobile industry as a pretty capable engineer, um, you know, business innovator, uh, the youngest person ever to become an executive at GM. And after he had gained all these accolades, created the Pontiac GTO, which I'm sure we all love. Um, I know I do. He set out to build a car with his name on it, the DMC-12 made by DeLorean Motor Company. So the story goes, because a lot of people know a little bit about it, but he was beginning the production initially in 1979, but he had a ton of engineering delays. Budget was way overrun and that caused assembly lines to start pretty late. Now the downside also was he decided to set up his factories in a part of Northern Ireland where he could get very, very cheap labor. In fact, it was a very poverty stricken area. Most of these workers were generally inexperienced. In fact, a lot of them, before joining DeLorean Motor Company, had never even held a job. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of scary. <laughs> and I, that's the thing. And he's like, well, I can get really cheap labor. We'll build the best car in the world. How does that make sense? Yeah, no. Yeah. You, you got to have experience. You Business have to have innovator. People who know what they're doing. Now, all of those early vehicles were terrible. I mean, there were so many reported quality issues. In fact, so bad that when the cars actually got here, most of them were completely taken apart and reassembled. Like they actually had quality control personnel to inspect the cars and and fix any known problems, people that were actually trained properly. Now, over the years, obviously, the workforce got a lot better building a terrible car. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, and the thing was, he marketed it well because that is something he was good at. Now, the early vehicles had, you know, a huge waiting list, even at, even at $25,000 in 1981. Um, but he hadn't released the stats by the time a lot of these, um, you know, orders had been placed. And by the time the actual performance figures came out for the car, a lot of people just dropped them, you know, road and track came out with a zero to 60 time of 10.5 seconds. I mean, that's not quick. There were SUVs that were pulling that in America at this point in time. (laughs) And this was supposed to be DeLorean motor cars, you know, that the father of the GTO creates the all-out sports car, and it it wasn't it. So the next thing that kind of happened, obviously, as this company was bleeding money, uh, in January 1982, due to the United States Securities and Exchange Commissions, Mm -hmm. they questioned about the company's viability, and the company was forced to cancel the stock issue for the holding company. 
And DeLorean had hoped that would raise him a considerable amount of funds, more than uh, amount of funds, more than twenty five million dollars. And DeLorean then ended up leaving that since he had lost all of his investors' backing, and he lobbied the British government for aid, but. He was refused unless he was able to finding the matching amount from other investors. So he quickly began trying to find other investors, you know, reaching out to people and seeing if anybody would loan him money. Now, what followed is a matter of of debate between the British government, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Drug Enforcement Administration, DeLorean, his investors, and the U.S. court. At some point in 1982, DeLorean became the target of an FBI sting operation designed to arrest drug traffickers. Now, again, since it's all muddled up in court, nobody knows if he was the one or if they actually approached him and he was unknowing. Now, he ended up being arrested in October 1982 and charged with conspiring to smuggle $24 million (laughs) worth of Colombian contraband into the United States. The key evidence for this was a videotape showing DeLorean discussing the drug deal with undercover FBI agents. <laughs> now, although, Set himself up for exactly, that. exactly. Now, although his attorney, you know, basically said that he was a victim of entrapment and um, that they approached him as legitimate investors and he was unknowing until the final stages. He ended up being acquitted of all charges, but of course his reputation ruined his image in the automotive industry, completely tarnished. And, um, you know, it was a failure, a big old flop. And, uh, that was all back to those 24 karat gold DeLoreans that were packed with cocaine. I just, Uh, as I always go back to, it's the irony of, you know, back to the future. And and the joke I always say is, you know, $24 million worth of cocaine, that's enough to get you to the future. (laughs) 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 You know, terrible joke, but that's always Uh, what's cracked me up about that scenario. That's funny. (laughs) All right. October 25th, 1970, 51 years ago, Jack Brabham, who is probably my favorite Australian, uh, he's also a three-time Formula One world champion. Uh, he won in 59, 60, and 66. 66 being with his own car. And he's still, to this day, the only driver ever to win a world championship in a car that he built himself. So at, at first, um, you know, Brabham, as a young man, was a Royal Australian Air Force uh, flight mechanic. And he also ran, afterwards, a small engineering workshop. So he started racing cars around 1948, uh, post-war, and you know he ended up winning in Australia, going to New Zealand, winning in New Zealand road racing events, um, and this led to him going to the UK to try and further his racing career. At that point, he was pretty much doing it full-time. So um, he became part of the Cooper Car Company racing team. He was building and racing cars. He contributed to the design of the mid-engine cars that Cooper introduced into Formula One racing and the Indianapolis 500. Jeez. Uh, again, you know, huge push. And this was before his name was even on it. Um, won the Formula One World Championship in 59 and 60. And then in 1962, he left and established his own Brabham Marquis with fellow Australian uh, Ron Toranak. And they became the largest manufacturer of customer racing cars in the world in the 1960s, allowing him to be competitive in F1 with his own cars. And in 66, he became the first and the only man to ever win driving his own. And the favorite car of mine of Brabham's that he did not drive in racing, but it was the Brabham BT46B fan car. Oh, yeah. And I know I was talking about that. Oh, it's got a yeah. big suction cup. Just 
It's awesome. It's so it's awesome. Amazing. Won its first time out. Everybody threw a hissy fit. He withdrew it from the race, even though he technically could have continued and won the season with it if he really wanted to. Of course, everybody else probably would have changed their cars. But yeah. <laughs> um, the point is, he was a thinker. Oh, yeah. A very, very good one. Very, very good one. That is that is one of those. All right. October 27th, 1964, Art Arfrons, driving the Green Monster, established a new world land speed record of 544 miles an hour at the Salt Flitz in Bonneville. Um, the cool part about this, uh, Art Arfrons was a drag racer, um, pretty much by trade. Um, and he had called all of his previous drag cars Green Monster, but this was his ultimate creation. He found a decommissioned General Electric J79 aircraft engine. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's impressive. He rebuilt it himself, even though all of the manuals on it were classified. Astonishing. And then he put wheels on it. What? So he tested this engine <laughs> that he was making this green monster world land speed record car. Um, in, you know, and he, he was basically building it in his garage and to test it, he tied it to an Oak tree in his backyard um, and turned it on and it, like kicked up dust. And then, and uh, like two of his neighbors called the police on him. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's so awesome. Um, anyway, he's, he's probably my hero, but yeah, 544 miles an hour. And, and you know, just, Old art, I just kicking up some I, dust in the backyard with a J seventy nine jet engine. I mean, that is in fact airplane speeds. It's amazing. It is. It really is. It's really, really amazing. All right, where are we at here? All right, so October 29th, nineteen sixty two. This is actually a fun little one. Um, Chrysler Corporation began the delivery pro program for the testing of the Chrysler turbine car. I know this one's kind of a little one, and I've talked about the Chrysler turbine car before, but I'd just like to highlight that the car basically got canceled because it melted bumpers <laughs> and set things aflame. But it was a pretty cool experiment. And for a little while, it really looked like people might be driving turbine cars. Um, and, and do, do a little bit of your own research on it, but it is a really, really neat car and it's just neat that they actually, of course, you know, did like standard testing. This was back in the day where they wouldn't have a bunch of employees go out and, and camouflage on the car. They would just go hand out a couple of these cars to everybody and so here say, you. report back to us. And I want to be one of those people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Please call me. <laughs> All right. October 30th, 1961, one of the wisest men in racing, Enzo Ferrari, made what many people thought was a very bad decision when he hired a 26-year-old to take charge of Ferrari's entire racing program. Oh, wow. The guy's name was Mauro Forgieri. And we'll have to do another podcast on this whole situation because we don't have enough time to cover it. But he changed the face of Ferrari's racing team and brought it into its golden era in F1. And it was an incredible story. Anyway, we'll go ahead and kick off the next one. October 31st, 1967. Um, the very first official, this is for you, Max, Baja 1000 yes. race started in Tijuana. That's pretty neat. 
Dia de los Muertos on Halloween. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I so, did not know that. Um, the uh, it was eight hundred forty nine miles, not not a full thousand miles, but twenty seven hours for a Myers Manx buggy to win it. A little I mean, buggy, and now fast forward to today, you've got twelve hundred horsepower off road beasts and and you know Pro Four cars, and you've got trophy trucks. It, it's it's turned into a whole event. That's awesome. You got to think, I mean, that's 27 hours and only 849 miles, you know, like 27 hours is, is something where you can almost get across the country, you yeah. know, and, and that amount of time, you know, way more mileage where 849 miles off road, middle of the desert, middle of the desert. That's, that's a race, you know, that, that, that's astonishing to me. And of course, as the reason why Wesley said that is because I'm always like, you got to get some Baja, some off-road racing. You know, I love rally cars, love Baja. I love the off-road aspect of things too. I know. So I always see that. like, thanks I feel like that. your your favorite place in the world would probably be the Baja 1000. Oh yeah, no question. That, that's definitely on the bucket list. Yeah. Even if I have to just go buy a regular Ford truck and just slowly drive through it, I'm going to one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a... What did you do to this rental car, sir? Nothing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I I got a Baja Blast from Taco Bell. That's what I did. A bumper's missing <laughs> and it has tractor tires on it. Don't worry about Didn't it. Didn't have time to take them off. You can keep them. You <laughs> pictures when I got it, right? <laughs> oh, man. All right. November Anyways. 2nd, 1983. Oh, quick stretch. A new type of vehicle came into existence. A vehicle that would change forever. The automotive realm. This vehicle, my friends, was a minivan. The Dodge Caravan and Plymouth Voyager. Oh, wow. I uh, was getting all excited. There's going to be something cool. Hey, man. <laughs> you know, these are, it's a pretty big deal it because is. it is a big deal. You know, Lee Iacocca tried to bring these about in the mid 70s and everybody shot them down. And he's like, no, they're going to work. I promise. And they're like, well, we've got full size vans. We've got sedans that are big enough to throw 18 bodies in the trunk. What do we need a minivan for? Yeah. And maybe back then they didn't. But now that you know fuel efficiency was on everybody's mind after the fuel crisis mm-hmm. and after everybody thought wow you know maybe a car isn't just about a sense of style but maybe we need to think about the utilitarian aspect of this vehicle and how will it will perform and, and work in our daily life and the minivan was perfect and still is yeah i mean I think of anytime you've gone to the grocery store i mean count <laughs> how many minivans are actually in the parking lot so the people There's love them people There's love them whether they admit it or not i used to hate them but now that I have a child, oh boy, there's nothing that makes me smile bigger than a loaded Sienna Limited. <laughs> Where oh you can my just gosh. press the doors open. You can press the rear hatch open. Oh my gosh. You could throw whatever you want in there. It's I amazing. cracked up my favorite one. So I, I detailed cars for a long time. Um, and it was, uh, I forget what year it was, but I think it was Honda introduced a built-in vacuum cleaner and they're like top tier touring models mm-hmm. i had never seen one used they were all still in the original <laughs> packaging and from working and cleaning cars minivans are always the worst oh by for far. unknown reasons oh, you, you can't figure it out it's not the five kids that are usually in the yep. back seat with goldfish everywhere but yeah <laughs> that was one of the funniest things about minivans that i saw a snack that makes a mess yep <laughs> so um that's funny. All right. November 4th, 1939. The Packard Motor Company, my friends, exhibited the world's first air-conditioned car. You what? can thank them all you want. Yes, please do. Oh, wow. 
and they called it the weather conditioner. Oh. It cost $279 and took up the entire trunk. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was, there was a little bit of sacrifice, well, a lot of sacrifice. So the, the first car to actually come standard fun fact with air conditioning was a 1968 AMC ambassador. Okay. Which is a beautiful car, by yes, the way. It is. It's, it's looks so good. Not you don't even see them. Cause I think they only made like six or 7,000 of them, but it's a beautiful car. Now Packard was the first one to offer it as an option. Now they actually required it to be sent to a different factory for the installation since the unit was actually, you know, connected to the engine. You know, they had basically the compressor that was hooked up to the drive belt, but the evaporator took up the trunk and Packard pitched it, you know, not just for comfort, comfort, but you know, um, privacy and everything. Cause you could keep the windows up and all that stuff. And, um, the, the, the refrigerated coils were basically located in an air duct and they had heating coils in another compartment, um, with the same duct. Now, the funny part was it wasn't modulated or it wasn't able to be modulated. So it was on or off and you either had cold heat or, or off. Oh, wow. And the capacity of the unit was equivalent to 1.5 tons of ice in 24 hours when the car was being driven. I mean, that's like, so, in comparison, what would that be? Almost like your house air conditioner level? A, a small apartment. I, I'm not an HVAC guy, yeah, but... A, a, a small, like, probably two-bedroom apartment. And you'd be ice cold in that apartment? Yeah. So, wow. And then the worst part, it took up the whole trunk. There was, like, just a little bit of storage room in the trunk where the evaporator wasn't sitting. And the only way to shut it off was to stop the car. You had to open the hood and remove the compressor drive belt. You put the compressor belt on and off the- that's mind boggling. <laughs> I mean, it works. Oh, it man. works. $279. They could all Think be yours. How, how terrible that would be if it was nowadays. Like, all right, well, it's, it's summer again. Uh, can you guys uh, put my belt back on oh, my, my air conditioner? God. Yeah. Been wearing a, a puffy jacket all summer. Yeah. <laughs> At least the windows are up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one up, November 5th, 1965. Um, the prototype Shelby GT350H was Ooh. shipped to Hertz for testing. Oh, yeah. I love that car. There was this big misconception back in the 60s that the Hertz car was purposefully slower than the actual Shelby GT350, which was not the case. They were mechanically identical. It's just the fact that Shelby GT350 owners were so butthurt that they bought a car that somebody could go out and rent in a cooler color. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, it was the only... You know, time like th- this manufacturer, uh, the first uh, order was 936, but they ended up building a lot of them for the rental car company. So Hertz actually contracted Ford, and Ford and Shelby conspired to build Hertz their own custom Shelby GT350s that had a, their own custom paint job with gold. Um, really cool car. In fact, I would rather have an H than a standard one just because of the color combo and the little story behind it. I just need though, like, you know, you don't have that anymore at all. It's just all, you know, modular cars that get sent over to these rental agencies. So the fact that to hear that number one, a Mustang mm-hmm. GT three fifty, that was made just for a rental company. That to me is mind blowing. Even nowadays, if you want to rent something fancy, you have to go through a luxury yeah. rental. Well, I mean, Hertz has, um, well, or at least they they did have. 
their little adrenaline series where you could rent, um, you know, upgraded cars. Obviously, COVID killed rental cars for a oh, yeah. aspect. But I'll tell you what, um, the one car that I always do like to rent when I go out of town, oh, of course, yeah. I'm not going to be able to yep. do that with a kid now, but was the Mustang convertible, just a little EcoBoost one. And it, they drive pretty well. It's You get little turbo noises, you get the convertible. So that way, when you're driving through the mountains or the canyons or something, you can actually look up and around. I don't really, I hate, you know, I just Mustangs. like the I just like the the view of the convertible because know. you know your view isn't impeded and when you're the driver <laughs> driving through all these beautiful scenic views I want to be able to look around and see stuff. You've always told me that and I'm like I don't understand and I never really asked why you rented them but I'm always like he goes out and gets this Mustang and EcoBoost at that I'm like I don't get a convertible like that's not Wesley and then sure enough I'm like oh yeah you're usually going through the mountains and some really cool scenery that exactly. totally makes sense and I almost always like to go somewhere and and pick a road that I want to drive to <laughs> like when we went out to Denver I'm like okay we're going to go to Colorado Springs I'm going to drive up to Pikes Peak <laughs> and we're not going to do that in a minivan in, in a minivan exactly <laughs> not in a Plymouth Voyager so that's been these weeks in automotive history thank you so much everyone that listens to the Car Tech Garage don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review I want to hear your feedback and um, yeah, I just want to make it better yeah and we appreciate you guys bye <laughs>